The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Sacred Life. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 16. And therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urged you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean, but that he had also descended to the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. So far in this series, we've kind of learned that Christians aren't Christians because they um, have turned their life around. Christians aren't Christians because they're better, they're more moral than other people. In fact, the first step to becoming a Christian is to admit that the exact opposite is true, that you realize your own sinfulness, you realize your own brokenness, you realize your own need for grace. That Christians recognize that they are actually people who need to be saved, that if they're just left to their own devices and their own way of living, that that will end in death and that will end in destruction. And so Christians, every Christian recognizes they needed an intervention and Jesus Christ was the one who intervened for them. And when that happens and people see their great need for salvation and they call upon God and they call upon Jesus Christ to be their mediator, God does something completely supernatural. He gives them a new heart. It's called regeneration, where God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, gives them a new heart. Jesus said, they're born again. They become completely new people on the inside. That doesn't mean they're without sin, but it means they're new. Now, what most people don't, realizes that even though this work of salvation that happens inside a believer is deeply personal, right? It's between them and God in a sense. 
not in a sense, it is. It's between them and God. It's deeply personal. We, we kind of knew about God, and then all of a sudden in this moment, God gives us this new heart, and now we see God in a different light, and now we have this new connection with God. He's not just God, but now he's Abba, he's Father. It's this deeply intimate, personal connection. It's also, though, now listen, I'm not negating that. That's absolutely true. It's deeply personal. But it's also communal. Now, what do I mean by that? Salvation is actually a community-making event. This, is, this is, should blow our minds a little bit. In the words of our text this morning, when God saves us, and he gives us this new life in Christ, we are grafted into what Paul calls a body of other believers that God calls the church, okay? So salvation isn't just intimate, or I mean, isn't just individual, it's communal, that when we're saved, when we become a Christian, we become a part of a new body. It's literally a community-making event. You become a member of God's body, of Christ's body, of God's church by turning from your sins and trusting in his grace. Now, what, interestingly enough, we preached through um, the book of Ephesians. That was our first series we ever did here at Sacred City. Um, surprisingly, it's pretty decent. That was five years ago. I was really concerned about my preaching back then, you know, like, I was concerned now as I look back and I went back and listened to one of the sermons and, and I, I was kind of edified myself. I was like, wow, I forgot a lot of stuff. That's good, actually. So you can go back and listen to our old podcast. They're on the, 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 the website. But what's interesting about the book of Ephesians, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. And I, I say that about every book that we teach if you're around here very long. But what's cool about Ephesians is Paul spends the first three chapters explaining everything well not everything that God has done through Christ and his spirit to save us. I mean, and, it, and it's really like Paul takes us into the, a- the atmosphere. He takes us into outer space and he describes the gospel in kind of galactic terms. And he talks about election from before the foundations of the world. He talks about predestination. He talks about being given the riches in Christ. He's talking about, I mean, just, it just explains it in just an amazing way. And he, he, the, only in, the only imperative, which tells us something to do, the only imperative he gives in the first three chapters is remember. It's the only imperative. He doesn't say, do this, do this, do this. He's first, all three chapters are just indicatives. This is what God has done in Christ. This is what God has done through the spirit. This is what God has done. Meaning to get our eyes, like to look up and see the glory and the grandeur and the might of our God. Ephesians one to three is all about everything God has done to rescue us and to really rescue the whole world. He says there that he's renewing all of creation. He's renewing everything through the power of Jesus. He tells us that God in Ephesians one through three, that God has, that we were born enemies of God. We were born uh, spiritually lifeless. Ephesians two, we were born dead in our trespasses and sin. We've talked about that in this series and God saved us and God raised us to new life by breathing his spirit into us and giving us faith to put our trust in him. All of this is amazing in Ephesians one through three, but Ephesians doesn't stop at chapter three. I think most people wish it did. 
I think many of us in our American society, in our Western context, we want a personal relationship with Jesus on our own terms. We want it at our leisure. We want it to be all about us and our feelings and and it's really centered around us. And, you know, as Thomas Jefferson did, you, you know, he used to tear out pieces of the Bible he didn't like. We can do that. Right? I like the first three chapters of Ephesians. That's, what, that's my Christianity. That's a false version of Christianity. Thankfully, Paul gives us chapters four through six as well. Paul goes on to give us three more chapters in which he shows us how a person who has been saved by God lives their life. The first three chapters is basically, here is what God has done for you. He's made you sacred. He's made everything sacred. He has set you apart and given you a new life. And the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians are, okay, this is what God has done. Now go live like it. Go live as sacred people. Go live as people holy unto the Lord. And this is how you do that. He gets very specific. And he's going to show us today the sacred life, the Christian life is meant to be lived as a member and as a minister in God's church. Did you hear that? I bet you probably weren't expecting that. The sacred life is meant to be lived as a member and a minister of God's church. Every single Christian on this planet is meant to be lived as a member and a minister in God's church. Now I know that language doesn't sound normal to us, but this should cause us to kind of, you know, why is that? Why does this seem weird to us? I bet you if I asked everyone in this room who feels like they are called by God to the ministry to please stand up, I bet only a few of us would stand up. Who's called to be a minister? Please stand up. A handful of people, people that probably are up on stage sometimes might stand up. But what this shows us is how far we have fallen or strayed or moved away from a biblical worldview or a biblical vocabulary or a way to see the ministry, a way to see life that's actually in line with scripture and not some cultural construct that we've been passed down or or we've adopted or created on our own. Every Christian is a minister. But, should probably cause us to ask some clarifying questions. First, what is the church? Second, what is the ministry? We need to clarify these things. Well, I think Paul answers these for us here in chapter four. I think he does it in the most succinct way in verse 12. And so we can take a look at verse 12 here really quick. When Paul says this, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now, I think in that little bitty sentence, right, that, that piece of a sentence, really, that, he, that Paul, has, there's a lot packed into that. First, what is the church? Well, we know our culture says the church is a building, 
right? Many people ask me, oh yeah, where's your church at? And I just want to be like everywhere. But they're like, where's your church at? And what they mean by that is where's your building or where do you gather? Right? So our culture thinks of the church as a building or church as a gathering. Many people see the church as a bunch of conservatives who kind of gather together to rally the troops to the next political cause. Many people see the church as a place to go and hear some encouraging music and listen to a guy give a peppy motivational talk. We have these ideas of what the church is, but those ideas are not biblical. Paul says those definitions are wrong. Paul says the church is the body of Christ. Now pause. Is the body of Christ universal? Absolutely. The body of Christ is universal. It's every believer across all scope of time and every country and a thousand years ago to a thousand years in the future, the church consists of all these things. That's the universal church. But this book was not written to the first universal church. This book was written to the churches in Ephesus. A gathering more than likely was a circular letter that went from missional community, small little house church to house church, and they would pass this around. And Paul writes to these little churches and he says, you are the body of Christ. And so Sacred City, I'm looking at you now. I'm not preaching to any other church today. No matter who's watching me on the internet, I'm preaching to this body of believers here in the Quad Cities. And I'm saying, you are the body of Christ here, right now. You are the body. Now, this analogy should help us kind of make sense of both what happens when we are saved and why we have a ministry, if we understand this analogy of the body. First, when we are saved, we are saved individually, but we are saved into a body. That means our salvation has a corporate aspect or corporal. That corporal means body, having a body, corporate, a body. It has a corporate aspect to it. Don't think like, you know, CEO-ish when I say that. Think possessing a body. Our salvation has a corporate aspect to it. We're saved into a body. And second, it helps us make sense of why we have a ministry. Think about this. If God saved us into a body, we are now a member of that body. And every member of a body has a specific function. It has a specific purpose, not to serve itself, but to build up the rest of the body. Every single piece of the body has a function and a purpose to serve the whole of the body. My finger has this purpose to serve the greater needs of my body. My finger does not exist for its own happiness. Thankfully, right? I didn't wake up this morning, one finger be like, today's my day off, man. <laughs> man, all the other ones are working. This one's like, nah, it's my Sabbath today. Taking off. My finger exists to serve the whole of my body. Now listen, the same is true for us. Every Christian is meant to be a member of a local church body and minister within that local body to build up the rest of the body, to serve the needs of the rest of the body. 
every single Christian. To be a Christian and to not be a member of a local church is to be a finger on the shelf in the closet. Think about it. It's kind of gross. I know, but it's kind of right. What's he doing? He's just, (laughs) what are the excuses? I'm just getting fed. He's in the closet watching podcasts. He's in the closet reading his Bible. He's in, he's off doing his own thing on his own, trying to serve his own needs. What is that? That's, that's gross. It's disconnected. It's, It's selfish, right? It's about him or whatever the thing is. It's useless to the body of Christ. When the body of Christ needs to use that finger, he's going to have to, the body's going to have to adapt in weird ways. Do you know that's what happens? Like if you get, if your body gets injured, my, when I was a senior in high school, last football game of the year, I was making a tackle. I uh, got leg whipped and dislocated my elbow, tore all my ligaments. And I had to wear a sling around my body and a cast around my body for a long time, but I was kind of an obnoxious psycho, so I still was wrestling, but I would, just adapt, I would just tape my arm to my body, and I would have to adapt and learn how to use my body in weird ways because I didn't have a left arm, all right? I know I'm weird, okay? I'm sorry. But hey, it happens to any of us, right? If you sprain your ankle, you don't, most of us don't quit walking. We don't quit going to work. We just adapt, and we walk with a limp. Well, I think many churches do the same thing because members aren't ministering. They're walking with a limp. They're trying to overcompensate. What happens when the left arm can't work, right? The right arm gets swole, right? The right arm has to use it. It's being used all the time. This right arm gets exhausted. This right arm gets overworked. I think there's many times in the body that one member is doing way too much because the left arm is chilling, or it's in the closet by itself, or doesn't understand who it is, or maybe it's been wounded or injured. So it's not functioning properly. One of the things that happened when I dislocated my elbow is once after a few months, they took that cast off. I looked at it and I was like, that is not my arm. That is a dead person's arm on my arm. Why? I had not used it. And it was like just shriveled up and green. It was gross. And it hurt to use and they made me use it. They would yell at me and tell me to bend it, right? They, they, that's rehab, right? Now, many of us have been wounded. We've been hurt in churches. We've been wounded as a part of a body. And the, the, the answer isn't just to, you know, to cover up and to stay isolated. The answer is you have to work it out. You have to work it out. You have to use the gifts. You have to be a part of the body. You have to function if you're going to be healthy yourself and you're going to be a part of a healthy body. The body needs everyone. Likewise, to be a Christian and to be a member of a local church and not to be ministering. So you could be a member, but you just come and you receive and you listen. But you're not ministering in that local church is literally to be like that arm that just hangs limp at your side. It's to be a lifeless minister, a lifeless member of the body that that your body is, it's, it's absorbing nutrients and absorbing energy. It's absorbing life from the body, but it's not helping the body. It's not providing for the body. It's not being used for the good of the body. Now, I think 
Interestingly enough, this is exactly what Paul had in mind when he was writing this. He knows that there are problems in the church. And so he's writing to a church. Uh, we, sometimes we get this idea, you know, I'm going to go back to a New Testament church and we're going to do things and it's going to be amazing. Well, a New Testament church is a jacked up church. I'm just going to let you know that. Right? Read the book of 1 Corinthians and go, we don't want to be that type of New Testament church. Right? Uh, the, the New Testament church had all the problems, all the sins, all the selfishness going on it that we do and that any other church in the world does. Now, why is that the case? Why do we want to be isolated and, and kind of away from people? And I don't want to be in community and I don't want to serve and I want people to kind of serve me. Why do we want that? Right? Why? Well, Paul tells us here, uh, let's look in verse 14. When he's talking about uh, the ministry and he's talking about every member being a part of that ministry in verse 14, look, look what he says. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Now, first off, what's he, what's he saying there? Well, congratulations. Paul is calling you immature. That's what Paul's saying, right? Now, first off, what does that mean? When we're born again, when we're given new life in Christ, like we talk about Ephesians one through three, we enter into this new life, spiritually infants. We're born spiritual babies. And Paul says, okay, yes, you're born a spiritual baby, but it's not okay for you to remain a spiritual baby. You must grow up. That's the goal. You must grow up. Right. But he looks at him and he says, and let me see, just so you don't hear me like talking down to you. And Paul's not talking down to anyone here. Paul says, we, <laughs> so that we are no longer children. What's he saying? All of us are spiritually immature. All of us bring our own problems and our own issues into the church, but we must grow up. And when you think about that, Paul is saying here, the church is meant to mature us. The body is meant to help us grow that on our own, we are immature. We are children. And what does he say specifically? We're tossed to and fro. What does that mean? Kids are, man, I could just preach the rest of the sermon right here. Kids are emotional. And I don't mean like a proper amount of emotion, right? Like we grow up and we grow out of emotion. No, 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 no. I mean, crazy emotional. I mean, weeping and gnashing of teeth and anger and murder and hatred in their hearts, right? I mean, kids are very immature, emotionally speaking, right? What else? They are easily influenced by what they believe, by what they watch on TV, by what they learn in school. They're easily influenced. Paul's saying, don't be easily influenced. Kids are easily influenced. Don't be, don't, is your doctrine solid? Do you know what you believe? Do you know what the scriptures teach? You, you better be solid on that. Don't be like children who are pushed around by different doctrines. What else? Kids are selfish, you haven't noticed kids are selfish. They walk into a room and the only person they really realize is there is themselves. They walk in like, why is everyone not serving my needs now? 
right? Mom and dad, you, mom and dad are having a conversation. Kid walks right in the middle. Sippy! Sippy! Right? And mom and dad are talking and just trying to act like this is not happening down here. And then what do they do? Oh, they're, they're in a conversation. Let me take my turn. Sippy! Sippy! Volume increases, then they start yanking on things, and if you don't, whop, flopped on the floor, and they get your attention that way, right? Kids are immature. Kids are selfish. I, I love my kids to death. Never once had they looked at me and said, Dad, today was a great day. I'm completely satisfied. <laughs> Never once. You can go amusement park, water park, ice cream, bedtime. Dad, tomorrow can we go whitewater rafting? <laughs> sure, son. Today didn't cost me $300, right? They're never satisfied. Constant entertainment. It's all about themselves. But guess what? We know as adults, giving into every one of their desires, will that make them happy? Absolutely not putting restrictions on their bedtime, putting restrictions on their diet. Right? No, you can't eat the entire chocolate cake tonight. Putting restrictions in their life is meant for their good. It's meant to bring maturity to their life. If they eat chocolate cake every day, they're going to get sick. They're going to have a malnourished existence. They're not going to be able to accomplish their dreams. They're probably going to fail in school. They're not, right? They're, they're not going to be ready. Parents have to bring restrictions. Now, Paul is saying spiritually immature people are the same way. They enter into a church thinking about me, thinking about the body. Am I going to get the nourishment that I need? Are people going to pay enough attention to me? Am I going to get my emotional needs met? They're easily offended. They easily take their ball and go home. They're immature, spiritually immature. Now, many of them have bounced from church to church to church. And I don't mean to offend because I know there's a lot of people like that in here. And it's always the church. It's always the church. It's always the church. And there are good reasons to leave churches. I'm not saying that. Theological reasons, mostly. Paul says that's immaturity. It's being a child. Children are selfish. Children think about their needs. Children want the family to serve them. When there's messes in the kid, when there's messes downstairs, my kids know exactly who made the mess and it wasn't them. Never. And when I asked them to clean up one, any type of mess that was perhaps contributed to by another child, it's the most unfair thing on the planet. But to their mind, what would be absolutely fair is if mom and dad cleaned it up. She made that mess. I'm not cleaning up. This isn't fair. What are they saying? Go ahead, dad. Paul is telling us if we want to be mature, and I'm going to prove this to you more in the text here. We have to be a part of a church. Now listen, um, Richard Plass wrote a book called the relational soul. And I was talking to him last week 
And he said, a church is basically a network of relationships. Okay. Think of that in the, in the, in thinking of a body, every body part is vitally connected through relationship to every part of the body, right? If you have a finger that's just been stapled on, that finger is not going to function right. It has to be literally grafted in and it has to be, have a, a vital union there. Right. And a church is basically that it's a body. It's a connect. It's, it's all it is, is a bunch of relationships. And this is what's so interesting. Our culture today craves relationships. They crave community, but they cannot produce it. Why? Because there's too many things that divide us. There's race, there's sex, there's money, there's politics, there's hobbies, there's music choice, there's neighborhoods, there's cities, there's cultures, there's countries. All of these things divide us. And so it's impossible to be, to be in relationship with people. And the other thing is, is we want this vulnerability. We want this kind of like, I want to be able to just be whoever I want to, I want to be who I am. I don't want to have to filter myself. Well, that's really cool until you try to live in relationship with that person. And they're so offensive. You can't stand being around them, but they're just who they are. You're like, well, stop. (laughs) See, we want this authenticity, but we don't have anything to actually keep us in unity together to do that. Well, Christians do. The gospel destroys every dividing wall of hostility. Again, in Ephesians, every culture doesn't mean what it used to mean. Race doesn't mean what it used to mean. Socioeconomic status doesn't mean what it used to mean. All of these things have been divided and now you're united in a body. And there's not like a rich white body. I'm going to be part of that body, right? There's no, no, no. We're all a part of a body. So our culture wants something desperately, but cannot create it. Our president has tried so hard the last eight years to create this unified, loving country and everyone by nearly every way imaginable, we are far more divided today than we were then. Our country, our culture cannot create it. Only the gospel can. And listen, this is one of the greatest apologetics for the gospel in our society, in our culture right now. If the church can be the church and can function as a body, the culture will look in and go, how do you guys do relationships? I don't get it. I don't understand how you can be so different and so connected and, and, and you have this type of community. I don't understand it and something about it is attractive to me. Right? They'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another, Jesus says. Now, this does not mean we won't offend each other, we won't fight, we won't argue. Absolutely not. But it means what it means is we we know how to reconcile. We know how to work through things. We know how to argue and have conversations and disagree with one another and yet come to the solid foundation of the gospel and say, you know what? That's probably a tertiary issue. We're unified in Christ. I love you as my brother. I love you as my sister. So what am I saying? It's vitally important for us as a church moving into this next century, moving into this next generation that we're in right now to do relationships well, to understand the body metaphor, understand you are a member and you are a minister in the body of Christ and you're absolutely needed. 
Now, this is interesting to me. I find this absolutely fascinating. When Paul talks about our problems living in community and being a part of the body, he says we are children, right? Plural. Talking about individuals. We're all children. But when he says, when he speaks of maturity, he says, I want you to look and look at, um, where's it at here? Mature manhood. Oh, 13, thank you. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the, look, the knowledge of the Son of God, look, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, if you have an ESV, that mature manhood, you probably have a little number by it, right? A little number six by it, and it's gonna, it's gonna help you clarify what the Greek word actually means. And if you go down to the bottom of that, you can look. What does it see? Greek means this, till they all grow up to a full-grown man. Now, what's interesting about that? He says this, when you're acting like children, you're doing your own thing, but when you're growing up into maturity, you grow up into a singular, you grow up into a full-grown man. What's he saying? The way to maturity is collectively as a church. You cannot grow to maturity on your own. Maturity cannot happen outside of a fully functioning body of Christ. You cannot grow up into spiritual maturity without being a member and a minister of God's church. I love it, man. I love the thought of that. Listen to this. Think about this. A church can be mature. I don't know if in a, a, a Christian, I don't think a Christian ever reaches spiritual maturity. If Paul here is saying, right? If Paul is saying we are children, right? And he's saying, I'm still spiritually immature with you. I don't know if any individual can ever really reach maturity, especially if maturity is what? The measure of Christ. All right? But what's he saying? Collectively, as a church, we can reach maturity. That's interesting to me. He's saying every person is needed. Now, how? How do we do this? We're children, right? How do we grow up into this full measure of Christ? How do we become members and ministers of Christ's church and we grow up into this maturity? Well, let's look at verse seven. But grace, charis, is the word in the Greek there. Grace was given to each one of us according to, and I know it's hot in here, but let me tell you, I'm hotter, okay? I'm sweating right now, right? Sorry. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I'm going to skip those other two verses right now. I'm going to go down to 11. And he gave, here's some of the gifts that Christ, the exalted Christ, gave to the church. The apostles, right? That's those who walked with Jesus and those who uh, were used by the Spirit to write the, the New Testament. There are no, in, in the sense, the big, we call it like this, the big A apostles don't exist anymore. Right? I can't get up here and say, thus saith the Lord, and then you guys just write it down. 
right? Like that doesn't happen. Now there are like apostolic gifts that people talk about, like planting churches that plant churches that plant churches, but, and, and we would say that's a little a apostle. Okay. Not this type of apostle. The prophets, people who spoke for God, thus saith the Lord again, all through the old Testament and even in the new Testament, the evangelists, people who preach the evangel, share the evangel, share the gospel. And then the shepherds and teachers, or this could be one term, shepherd teachers, or, and shepherd poema, that, that literally means pastor. So this is where we get our word pastor from, pastor teachers. So God, God's, Paul's saying God's given gifts to everybody in the body, and these are gifts too. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers, the pastors. These are gifts given by God for the church. Now look what he keeps saying. What, what do these gifts do? Well, do I want to go there yet? Hmm. I don't think I do. I'm going to push pause right there. I'm going to go to verse one. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to look at this. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In all humility and gentleness with patience. Bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now this is my first point. I've only got two, so don't worry. How do we live as a member in the body of Christ and as a member and a minister in the body of Christ? First one Paul tells us is the posture we need to have. Our posture. Humility is the opposite of spiritual immaturity. Do you see this? Little kid, he's Selfish, he's proud, he knows the right way to do everything. He walks into every situation and knows exactly what he wants you to do, and his way is the right way. Paul says the posture that Christians have is one of humility. I wish we really believed this. You have no idea what will make you happy. You've been convinced over and over and over and over in your life. Once I get this, I'll be happy. And you got it. And you realized I'm not happy. Humility not doesn't walk into a room and expect everyone to make it about them. Humility recognizes I'm a finger. The eye might have a different perspective than me. See, the arrogant person, or I don't maybe that we, we I know we don't want to think of ourselves as arrogant, but the person who is immature walks in and wants everyone to think like them, wants everyone to act like them, wants everyone to feel like them, wants everyone to do things their way. Paul says the mature person has a posture of humility. Gentleness. We talked about this last week. That's the posture of a member of a body of Christ, that of gentleness, right? Rarely is my fist not gentle with me, my body, right? I don't inflict pain on myself very often unless I'm working out, right? When we're loving one another, we're caring, we're in community with one another, we we have a posture of gentleness, with one another. We bear with one another in love. This is our posture. Now, listen, again, 
This is completely juxtaposed to our culture that says, if you want something, go get it. You can do it. You got all the power in yourself. It's what's it doing? Pumping up your pride. Then what's it say? Don't be gentle. Go out and take it. The world's yours for the taking. Go out and make it happen. Right? Annihilate the competitors. Dominate. Do it. Now, listen, you're, I think we're taught this from a little child. Whether it's in athletics or wherever it's at, nobody wants that little son that's gentle, right? He goes up in the football team. <laughs> Dad's like, comes over, you take his legs out next time. Hit him right here. He could go down every time. Right? Third grade, career, injury, career ending injuries. Dad's like, that's right. Our culture is shaping us into the type of people who gentleness is to be avoided. Humility is to be avoided. What's interesting though, what's very interesting, we live in a long time called Christendom where humility and gentleness were applauded as virtues. They're no longer, but they were not in Paul's day either. Gentleness gets you thrown to the lions. Right? Humility gets you made fun of. The cross is a laughing stock. Right? We need to be called back to this biblical worldview. Gentle people, humble people, bearing burdens with one another in love. Now, well, how do we learn this, Justin? Well, how do we learn the other thing? We learn the other, we learn the other ways by just being in relationship. Well, the same thing happens. Listen to this. How do you learn gentleness? How do you learn humility? How do you learn this self-forgetfulness and other-centered? By being a part of a body through relationships. That's how you learn. That's how you learn everything. By being relational is how you learn. Not by being on the internet. Not by downloading information into your mind. You, that doesn't change you. What changes you is, if you're not a gentle person, what changes you is being in relationship with a gentle person and go, Wow. That's how they responded to that. I have never seen that before. And he got a different response. Hmm. Interesting. We grow, we learn, we change by being in relationships. Specifically, we talked about last week, putting the yoke of Christ on, being in a relationship with Christ. His gentleness changes, his humility changes, but also with the body of believers. We're connected to the head. We're connected to each other with different gifts than us. And we learn from them. Listen, some of us have gifts that are completely foreign. Many of us don't even know their gifts. I have a, a friend. I don't think he's here today. I wanted to point him out, and, but I'll say it anyways. Brad, Brad Musman. Okay. He, he usually sits up here somewhere and he looks like he's like my hitman is what he looks like. <laughs> Shaved head, big dude but his heart is bigger than his biceps. What's unique is Brad has been given the gift of mercy. He has been given a gift of mercy. He's compassionate. He's, he's a big dude that looks like he could break your neck, but he's very kind and he'll cry with you and he'll spit die with you. And he's like, a, you know, they like say like a big teddy bear. Well, being around Brad, I'm like, whoa, I, uh, I don't have the gift of mercy. I don't. Now, God calls us all to be merciful, but he doesn't, call us, he doesn't give us all the gift 
of giving mercy. Now, for Brad to expect me to live like him and to love like him and to show mercy like him would be the same thing of me having the gift of leadership and having the gift of preaching to be like, okay, Brad, I'll be merciful. You come up here and preach for me. Now we get it, right? We get that doesn't work. This is my gift. This is how I didn't earn this. I didn't even, you know, seminary didn't teach me this. This is a gift from God. The gift of mercy that my brother Brad has is a gift of God. He can't look at everybody else and expect everybody to be as merciful as him. It's like me looking at all you guys and going, okay, who wants to preach this week? And expecting you to preach like I preach. It's, it's a gift. It's a gift. Now what's unique is we've, well, I mean, just not get into that yet. But the point is being in relationship with my brother Brad teaches me how to be more merciful right? His mercy wears off on me. Hopefully my, you know, theology wears off on him. So my stuff wears off on him and he grows as well. Now it's interesting too, because I think our culture recognizes this. We want this community. I saw this little thing on, on Facebook. I've seen it a thousand times, but I saw this week and it says, you want to know where you'll be in 10 years? You'll be the sum total of the three people you spend the most time with. What were they saying? Your relationships kind of determine your destiny. Your relationships kind of determine your future. You're going to learn and grow and become like those you're in relationship with. Now, Paul saying that over 2000 years ago, you grow into maturity as a part of the body. You learn from other gifts. You learn from other people. You grow into maturity as a part of the body. Now, Paul says that Christians are, they have this posture of humility and gentleness and they're to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now I'm pretty sure we want all of our body parts working well together, right? We don't want anyone taking a break. We don't want anybody going on strike. You wake up. That's bad, right? Kidney stops working. This is bad. We all got to go to the hospital now. And Paul's saying as a member of the body, I want you to maintain the unity, work for, be at peace. I want all the body parts functioning well. We aren't to set one body part up on a pedestal. That's Frankenstein stuff. We don't want that to happen. We're to keep the peace. It's a part of the body. And he says, this is grounded in theology, right? This is grounded in who God is. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father, right? This is all, why should we be united? Because God is united and God has brought us into one family. He's brought us into one body. That's why we're united. And what does he say? Paul says, I like this. Every word matters here. Paul doesn't say, create that. That's what our culture says. You want unity? Go create it. Paul doesn't say create it. Paul says, maintain it. You've already been united in Christ. You've already been brought into the body. All the dividing wall of hostilities have been torn down. Everything you need for unity has been given to you. You are a member of of a body. Maintain that unity. Now, how? Do we do that? And this is what I, I mean, this just blows my mind. God has united us in such a way that to maintain our unity, 
we must practice our diversity. God has united us in such a way that to maintain our unity, we must practice our diversity. In other words, first off, we have a posture that we need to have, humility, gentleness, bearing with one another in love. And secondly, we must play our part. Literally, play your part. If you're an eye, be an eye. If you're an ear, be an ear. If you're a hair follicle, be a hair follicle. Use the gift that you've been given. This is how the body's matured into a unity. Grace was given, right? Verse 11, let's go back to uh, verse 11. I'm sorry, guys, I jumped ahead before that. I'm sorry, I messed that up. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints. Whoa. Why did he give those big talking gifts? The evangelists, the prophets, the apostles, the shepherd teachers. I'm a shepherd teacher. Why did he give those gifts? To equip the saints. For what? The work of ministry. And if you're going, thankfully I'm not a saint. Heard they had to like raise the dead or something post-mortem to be a saint. Well, no. Biblical language, a saint is a Christian. A saint is a person who's been set apart by God and filled with the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you're a saint, and therefore you've been called into ministry, and my job as a shepherd teacher is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Is that new to you? My job isn't just to minister. My job is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. John Stott says the church is not a bus driven by the pastor and everybody else is just along for the ride. The church is a body. I'm a member of your, I'm a member of the body with you. I'm just a member. Church leaders are to equip the saints and the saints are to do the work of the ministry or church leaders and the saints do the work of the ministry together, their own part. This is how the church is supposed to function. Every member has been called to ministry. Every Christian has been uniquely gifted for ministry to build up the body of Christ to maturity. Now, I don't have time this morning to go into the the topic of specific spiritual gifts. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 are some good places to go. They talk at length about spiritual gifts. But let me just say this. Many of these gifts, charis, or even charismata, they don't seem that spiritual. They don't seem that supernatural. Let me just name a couple. Here we go. The spiritual gift of leadership. Okay. The spiritual gift of administration. Administration as a spiritual gift. It's a gift from God. Right? 
the gift of mercy, the gift of teaching. Here's one, the gift of helping. Now this is not like draft day. Like you're trying to decide like, which one do I want? Right? I don't want to be a helper. Listen, the spirit is called our helper. Serving, the gift of serving, the gift of giving generously, financially. These are gifts. Paul is saying every Christian has been given a unique set of grace gifts to be used to build up the body of Christ into maturity. Some are spectacular and some are simple, but they're all necessary and needed. Do you know yours? Now listen, this is funny. You know how you, many people are like, you know what? I've grown up in churches for, I've been in churches for about 15 years now and everyone that they want to hear, here's a spiritual gift test. Give me a break. Spiritual gift test. Do you think Paul was using that? Right? This one goes along with your personality profile, so it's really accurate. How do you learn what you're good at? By being in relationships. Somewhere along the line, your mom looked at you and go, you're amazing at reading. You're really good. You're really kind. You're really gentle. Right? You're a really good mom. Watching my daughters be with their babies. Now, sometimes they are. Sometimes they're like, you're a bad mom. <laughs> Just threw it on the steps when you got mad. Right? We learn our gifts. Right? You're good at arguing with people. You're good at arguing. You have a very detail-oriented way of thinking. You're a great writer. We learn what we're good at, and this is why many uh, people in our generation, they don't have a career path. They don't know what to do with their life because they grew up in broken homes. They grew up in faulty families, bad families, and no one ever looked at them and said, you're really good at this. You should pursue that. And so they just flo- they're just floating ar- around and they don't know what to do with their life. Same with the church. You live in a missional community. You live a part of the church. Somebody's going to look at you and go, the way you prayed last night really moved me. There's people that when we pray with, they just start weeping. And I'm like, oh, it just melts me. If a gift, some kind of gift, gift of prayer, gift of mercy, I don't know what it is, gift of compassion, but it moves me. We learn what we're good at by being a part of a body. And eventually, and listen, we need to get good at this. And we're going to see this in the text. We need to get good at looking at people and going, you know what? I think you're gifted for this. You know what? That encourages me. That reminds me of Jesus. When I, the way you give reminds me of Jesus. The way you serve reminds me of Jesus. The way you use your gifts reminds me of Jesus. Do you know your gifts? And secondly, are you using your gifts as a part of the body of Christ to serve God's church? It's impossible to reach spiritual maturity without the church. 
It's impossible for the church to reach maturity and unity without each member using their gifts to build up the church in love. Well, what if you don't really know what gifts uh, that, you know, what gifts I have and what, what should I do? Well, it's kind of interesting here. I think Paul kind of gives us kind of like a, a junk drawer term for all of us. You know, the junk drawer, hopefully you've all got one of those. Never been to a kitchen without one. Pull it out. Can't quite get it out because the batteries are stacked up so high. You know that one? Yeah, you got to, re- you know, pull it out. This is what he says. So that we, he's like, don't be children so that we no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful means. Look, rather, so don't be that. Don't be immature anymore, doing your own thing off, you know, by yourself, trying to be your own church by yourself and just don't do that. Don't be spiritually mature. Rather, speaking the truth in love. Interesting. We are to grow up in every way into him, Jesus, who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. That's the junk drawer term for how we minister to one another, how we play our part. We speak the truth in love to one another. Where is this done? It's done everywhere. I'm doing it right now, I hope. We do it to one another. When, when I, we walk down here and we're going to talk to each one that we share, we're speaking the truth to one another. We do it in missional community. We do it in our marriages that Paul goes on in Ephesians 5, right? And if we do it in our marriages. This is, we speak the truth in one, to one another and love to one another. We do it in our fight clubs here at Sacred City. We do it when we run into each other. We do it everywhere. This is what we do. We have a posture of humility, a posture of gentleness, a posture of love, and we speak the truth in love. But what does it really mean to speak the truth in love? Now listen, this is interesting. I mean, I got this, I've said that a lot this morning. Um, I learned this here from, from Pastor Tim Keller. He's past, an older pastor. He's in Manhattan, uh, New York, and he's influenced us a lot here at Sacred City. And he's talking about speaking the truth in love. And what most of us do is we are naturally one or the other. It's naturally easy for some of us, I don't know who these people are, to speak the truth. It's naturally easy to say hard things. And then there's this other group of people that's just like, let's just love. Let's just be there. Let's just nod our head. Let's just put our arms around people. Let's just love. And Paul goes, no, 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 no. You're wrong on both, both parts. We got to speak the truth in love. If you ever hear that quote, you know, uh, whatever it is, I can't even remember it right off the top of my head, but like preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. The gospel is a message to be declared. We're to speak the truth in love. Now listen what Keller says here. Why do those of us, I'm quoting him. Why do those of us who tend to be more loving fail to tell the truth? Because we're afraid the person will be mad at us or hurt by us, be crushed, and then we'll feel guilty. 
If we hurt them by saying something, the truth to them, we'll feel guilty. The reason we're not telling the truth is pride, selfishness, self-centeredness. That's the reason why we're withholding the truth from people. Keller goes on. What about those of us who tell the truth, but we're not very loving? Do you know why? It's your motivation. We tell the truth, but we want to kind of put them in their place. We tell the truth, but we want to show them who's right. We tell the truth, but we like winning arguments. We tell the truth, but we have motivations that are basically selfish. We like to show off how much we know. We like to show off that we're right. We enjoy, in a sense, putting the person down or putting them in their place. Keller goes on. If you tell the truth without love, it's because you're not really concerned with the truth. You're concerned about you. If you give love without telling the truth, it's because you're not really loving them. You're loving you. You're concerned with yourself. And because of our self-centeredness, because of our sin, nobody is capable of mixing truth and love in the balance that we need. Isn't that awful? Isn't this a problem? Paul says we all grow by speaking the truth in love to one another, but all of us are out of balance. There's only one person who unites truth and love perfectly. And that person was of course, Jesus Christ. And how did Jesus love us? Do you realize Jesus said the most offensive thing to you that anyone on the earth has ever said? If you really understand who Jesus was, he has offended you more than anyone else on the planet because Jesus Christ looked at you and when he went to the cross, he said, you are so spiritually lifeless. The only way for you to live and do anything good ever in your life is for me to die for you. Absolutely worthless. You are a spiritual failure. Jesus said that. But what did he also say? He says, and I'm doing it because I love you. And I'm doing it willingly. It should blow our mind. It should cause us to sing and shout and maybe move our foot, maybe occasionally. Maybe do this thing. I don't know. Occasionally. It should. It humbles us. And it exalts us in Christ. So spiritually dead, so broken in sin, so selfish, so childlike, and yet so loved. I'm so bad that Jesus had to die for me. And yet I'm so loved that he willingly did it for me. And so when we as we believe that, as we see what Christ has done for us, as we see our need for the body, that you're a truth speaker, you need 
to be softened by love. You need some, you need a, a lover alongside of you and you guys need to l- work it out together. And the lover needs to become more truth speaker and the truth speaker needs to become more loving. And we need to do it together knowing we're going to do it imperfectly. We're going to fail often. We're going to hurt one another and sin one another. But the gospel tells us my identity, my worth, my value is in Christ, not in my performance, not in my ability to speak the truth in love. Only Jesus did it perfectly and he did it on our behalf. And therefore, if I believe the gospel, I'm willing to say hard things and I'm willing to come alongside and suffer with someone. I'm willing to do these things and I won't do it perfectly. They're going to look at me and they're going to go, you didn't do it right. And I can go, you're right. I didn't do it right. I'm a sinner. Jesus is the only one who's done it right. Let's keep learning together. Let's keep growing together. It's how the body grows up to the fullness of Christ. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of your church. I thank you for being a member here of an imperfect body that has wounds, um, that has strengths and weaknesses, that has immaturity. But I also thank you for how you've gifted this church. Such a young church and you've blessed us in so many ways how you're maturing us and causing us to grow up and to be like Jesus and how you're teaching us we don't have to do it the way the world does. We don't have to walk with a swagger. We don't have to make it happen that we can be humble and we can be gentle. We can say, I'm worse than I ever thought possible. But we don't have to grovel. We don't have to be insecure because we're loved more than we ever thought, more than we ever dreamed, more than we ever imagined cross does both of these things for us. Father, I pray that you would help us live this out in the city. That the world would know us by our love for one another. We only love each other because you've loved us first. So I pray this morning that we would repent for our selfishness, for our self-centered actions, for using the church to meet our own needs instead of ministering as a member of the church. God, I pray that you just breathe after, you know, those times of repentance, you you send times of refreshing, that you'd breathe your spirit in us, enable all of us to live as a member and a minister as your body, speaking the truth in love to one another. Help us, Lord, as we come with open hands and we receive your body that was broken for us and your blood that was shed for us. We thank you for this gift, Father. I pray that we take it in a worthy manner. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen.